Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. As I remember it, I was taught in school that globalization began when the Portuguese explorer Bartolomeu Dias sailed around the Cape of Good Hope in 1488, and then Christopher Columbus discovered the Americas four years later, and shortly after, Vasco da Gama and Ferdinand Magellan discovered trade routes. Valerie Hansen, the Stanley Woodward Professor of History at Yale University, challenges that history in her latest book called The Year 1000, When Explorers Connected the World and Globalization Began. It's published by Scriveners. Through the use of cutting-edge archaeology and a vast range of primary source materials, she demonstrates that cultural and economic integration, globalization, happened long before the late 14, 15th century. And I'm very pleased to welcome Professor Hansen to our show now. Hello. Hello. Great to be here. Thank you so Perhaps. much, Leonard. Oh, my pleasure. It's a fascinating story. Perhaps we should start with the definition of globalization. Um, I, I, for me, globalization is when people in one part of the world are affected by economic forces stemming from another part of the world over which they have no control. And we can see that happening most clearly uh, in China and Southeast Asia and the Islamic world uh, around the year 1000 when people in Southeast Asia are producing, uh, it's funny, we say producing, but they're uh, harvesting fragrant woods and spices uh, in forests and, and animals too and, and exporting them to China where there's a huge demand for these aromatics and then all of those things being aromatics. And then uh, the Chinese are exporting the, you know, the iPhones of their day, so um, very high-quality ceramics, metal goods, and, of course, textiles. So nothing's really changed. Now, we kind of, I kind of knew that, and yet there is that story, the longstanding story, the beginnings of globalization. Where did that come from? Oh, <laughs> you mean what? I mean, has I the definition of globalization changed over time? For example, some might even argue that it wasn't until the 20th century that that globalization really developed. Right. There's, I mean, there, there's a, there are people who point to the late 1970s and uh, the, uh, uh, you know, sourcing, offshore sourcing as the key change. You know, there are also people who have talked about globalization going back to 3000 BC um, with evidence from ancient Mesopotamia, and there is trade which you can track nicely and archaeologically through lapis lazuli. Uh, you can see where it comes into Mesopotamia from um, what's now Pakistan. So, you know, it, it, there's a lot of different definitions of globalization. The, the one that you began with talking about the European explorers in 1500, I am the first to admit that something important changes in 1500. But I think the idea we have that nothing was happening before the Europeans, that idea is too simple. And that when we look at where the European explorers went, there are some no, new routes that they open up um, around 1500. When Columbus crosses the middle Atlantic, uh, no one is, crossing, has, um, is using that as a regular route. And when the Portuguese go down the west coast of Africa, that's a new route. But as soon as the Portuguese round the Cape of Good Hope and they're on the east coast of Africa, um, the, the Gama can hire a pilot to take him to India. He's on a very established route, and I, the most important route that's in use starting around 1000, even a little bit earlier, and continuing up to 1500, 
connects East Africa with the Islamic world, with India, with Southeast Asia, and then ultimately with the, these giant port cities on the Southeast Chinese coast. When people from Asia crossed the Beringia land bridge that connected Siberia to what's now Alaska some 20,000 years ago, would, was that a form of, of globalization or uh, was that different because trade wasn't part of the process? They don't go back. Right. I mean, it's true. The world is connected there. Um, and, you know, oh, it's going travel, back is important. I see going back and forth, I think, is important to set up a route to set up what mm -hmm. I call a pathway. Right. If you travel one way and you don't go back. And I was going to say uh, the another very early and interesting example of movement is the settlement of Australia. And people mm -hmm. arrive in Australia around 40,000 B.C. And uh, but that movement, that the sort of combination of winds and ocean currents make it much easier to go south than to go north. So but the definition, if we say that going back is important, the people who settle in Australia also don't go back. They just, they arrive in Australia and they stay there. But wasn't there trade between the various areas of, of Polynesia? Uh, Absolutely, but the... not that early. <laughs> oh, okay. I mean, the, the, the Polynesians are there. I mean, one of the things in writing this book that really struck me was that how many things happen in the year 1000 you you can tell the book is organized regionally mm. and so i would start doing the research for a chapter and then be thinking oh look the year 1000 just keeps coming up and even before i was writing this book that i noticed that that it's just a year the year 1000 ad um, one of my friends teases me and says i should be clear about which one which year 1000 yes. i'm talking about um, but, but anyway the polynesians uh, set off on a series of journeys in the pacific that very dramatic um, starting in 1025, um, and then it takes them about 250, a little bit more years, till they so they settle in Hawaii and then Easter Island and New Zealand, and they are, the their date ranges because it's archaeological evidence that we're using, but we're they certainly have settled the, those three points of the Pacific Triangle around the, the late 1200s. Now you also teach Chinese history. Uh, is that did that lead you into uh, questioning the prevailing stories of globalization? Yes, I mean, I th it, it, it was, but it's funny. I, I was going to say, I think the most important teaching I did, and I've been doing this for about twenty years, on and off, with a colleague of mine who, very sadly, is um, has is leaving Yale. He's technically he's already left, I guess, because he's moved to Norway. Anders Winroth, but he and I have been teaching comparative China Europe classes, looking at. We, we taught a class, the first class we taught together was the medieval transformation of Europe and China. And he was one of the first people who was always talking about the year 1000 and how important the year 1000 was in Europe. And it's an important year in China, but not as much as it is in Europe. And uh, that got me thinking about this. In 1000, uh, the Viking Leif, er Leif Erikson sailed to Canada. Uh, right. Did that connect a trade route? Uh, was that the first serious trade route uh, around the globe? That's the first transatlantic, this first serious transatlantic trade route, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's, I mean, the, the Vikings stay in Canada not very long. There's an archaeological, the one archaeological settlement we know about so far, um, they're there for 10 years. But even after they leave, they come back uh, to pick up lumber. There's no, there's, Greenland ha has no trees. Iceland had trees, and once the mm -hmm. Norse settled there, um, they the trees don't regenerate, so they need lumber, and they do they pick up some furs. So that route, that North Atlantic route, is in use. Not 
not heavy use. It's not it's the traffic on it is nothing like the traffic I was telling you about between East Africa and China. Well, he established a Norse settlement in Vinland or or Lons uh, Ometo uh, in the northern tip of what's now Newfoundland. Absolutely so right. So that and lasted I, about ten years, and then that, that's why right. did they abandon it? Probably, you know, with, with, when when civilizations end, there's no archaeological evidence for why people leave, right? There's, and then archaeologists come up with various explanations. The Icelandic sagas, which are were written down a couple of centuries later, they tell us, there are two of them, and they tell the same story about the Vikings being outnumbered by the local peoples, the indigenous peoples, and they're called the Skrælings, so the wretched ones. And um, we know who they are archaeologically. They're this, like, the woodland peoples of them. They're the same as in um, the Northeast Americas. So, um, the, and they have, uh, there's a fight in, described in one of the Icelandic sagas where the, um, the Amerindians launch a ballista, a, a, a bag filled with rocks, um, and it lands in the middle of the Norse camp, and it scares them. The, the Norse have an advantage over the Amerindians because they have uh, iron daggers and um, spears, so they have metal goods that the Amerindians don't have. But if there, if there are many more Amerindians than there are Norse, and, and they, um, they don't, their weapons are not good enough to offset the disadvantage of being outnumbered. And everywhere the Norse go and they stay, uh, well, I was going to say some of the places that they go in the Atlantic, so Greenland and Iceland uh, are empty when they arrive. That's the kind of place that they like. Uh, but then but the they, Normans went on to conquer France, England, and even Sicily. Well, it's funny. But yeah, the descendants, they, it's true. The, the Norman kings are de claimed descent from the north, but there also is a lot of mixing with other Europeans, that, the, like the people who go to Sicily or uh, even, you know, who conquer. I mean, like the, you could say the Norman conquest of England um, is there are the William the Conqueror claims descent from the north, but he's also got a lot of French in him. Now, uh, the Phoenicians were a trading powerhouse in the ancient world and True. had excellent seafaring skills. Uh, what about the theory that they came to the Americas, Americas even before Leif Erikson? Well, you know, there's a, lot, there's a lot of theories about people moving around the oceans. And I, I, you can never know that some, some group didn't come, right? You can only know that there's no evidence of their coming. In fact, there are people uh, and, who feel that Africans came based on some of the, the sculptures that we find in, in, uh, in Mexico. Right. And, and there's, I mean, there's a, a lot of that kind of overlapping motifs that people think, well, you just, it's impossible that these developed independently. Therefore, we can know that X group of people went to some distant place. I was going to say the Phoenicians, I mean, Herodotus has a very interesting anecdote about the Phoenicians circumnavigating Africa, right? They're in a boat, and then the, suddenly the sun is on the different side of the boat. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's, <laughs> that's kind of, that to me is more credible evidence of long-distance navigation in the ancient past. Herodotus is writing in the 400 BC, 400s BC. Uh, that's more persuasive to me than these the overlapping motifs, especially a lot of times with those the motif arguments, there's a huge time gap. So a motif will look some some Latin American motif will look a lot like an ancient Chinese bronze, 
but there'll be a 2,000-year gap. You're like, well, as a historian, you know, that's, that, that doesn't make any sense, right? If the people went, they'd introduce um, those motifs. So but how do we explain those things? Just coincidence? Yeah, I would. I would just say independent origin. That, you, you know, there's, uh, if you study art history, right, you, you often see the same motifs arising in different places. Maybe, you know, and then sometimes surprisingly so. Uh, I was going to say, and I write about this in the book, that um, there's, I am sympathetic to uh, an argument that is, hasn't been made about the Vikings getting to um, the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico, um, and there I have, uh, I, the world has some visual evidence by Mayan artists showing captives who have blonde hair um, and very light-colored eyes, and also a boat that looks a lot like a Viking ship, um, and unlike the dugout canoes that the Maya used. And that's in Mayan drawings in Chichen Itza and, and exactly. other ruins? Exactly, in, from Chichen Itza, yeah, in the temple of, particularly the temple of the warriors. Wow. Uh, well, uh, that would convince me. Uh, but... <laughs> well, I was teaching I was teaching a class in the fall with Anders Winroth, and uh, we, we had a test for the students where I, I gave them different pieces of information, we gave them different pieces of information and asked them to say whether they thought it was convincing or plausible or possible or impossible, right? And so I think right now the um, theory that the Vikings got to the Yucatan Peninsula is plausible. I, I, you know, I think we need more evidence um, to, for us to say it's definite. And the uh, archaeological evidence of the Vikings in, in New Finland I mean, that, that's definite, that, you know, we have um, artifacts that look exactly like uh, those found in Denmark. Uh, and we also have evidence of working iron. And um, the uh, Amerindians and the peoples living in North America were working different metals um, in the, around the year 1000. But nobody was working iron. So that, you know, that's why we can say with certainty that the Vikings got to Lansdowne Meadows in, in the, uh, in New, on the island of Newfoundland in, in Canada. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. I'm talking with Valerie Hansen, who is the Stanley Woodward Professor of History at Yale University, author of a number of books, the latest called The Year 1000, When Explorers Connected the World and Globalization Began. You mentioned the, uh, the Chichen Itza uh, drawings, but um, th there are any number of different uh, uh, things that you unearthed during your research. Um, for example, uh, theobromine, is it theobromine? Right, right. I mean, that, that's, Also the Mayans? That is, right. And I mean, the Mayans are um, the first people in the world to um, harvest chocolate. Oh, you know what? That's not true. There are, sorry, I take that back. They're um, people, the first people, the earliest chocolate goes back um, before the Maya. But the Maya are trading in chocolate, and we know that, that they're trading with the peoples living in um, Chaco Canyon in modern-day uh, New Mexico. New Mexico, wow. Because the um, vessels, the Chaco Canyon vessels that were excavated in the 30s have traces, chemical residues in the bottom of the vessels. And then when um, scientists uh, examined those, and this is something. There's a one of the really fun things about this book was all the archaeological breakthroughs that give us new information about these connections that we, you know, in the old days didn't really think 
could have existed. Uh, but anyway, the ex um, the chemical examination of those residues shows that it was chocolate, and so we can. And then we there's archaeological evidence of the trade. So the um, ancestors, the ancestral Puebloans, are exporting turquoise to the Maya, and the Maya put turquoise in different. Um, art objects that they make, and then the Maya are trading chocolate and also um, macaw birds. And we, the the um, Amerindians valued these feathers because they're so brightly colored; they're bright blue and bright red. Um, but archaeologists have also found um, skeletons of the macaws in this the area around Chaco Canyon, and the birds have been they lived in cages. And then um, the archaeologists find that the, from the skeletons that the birds were malnourished. So they were prized for their feathers, but when they arrived in Chaco Canyon, they weren't taken care of very well, and they were probably inside all of the time, which is, has uh, altered their skeletons. Now, so, I've been to both Chaco Canyon and Mayan ruins in southern Mexico and uh, other parts of Mesoamerica. It's a big trip from the 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 south to the to new mexico and and uh charcoal canyon is inland as well how would what would the trade route have been could would it have been all overland all over all through what is now mexico well it's funny there, i mean there's a there's a possibility because i mean they Kenny didn't have airplanes despite the fact that donald trump thinks they probably did but uh, <laughs> well, but there some of most of the travel is overland, but when we say overland, it's taking advantage of rivers. Uh, archaeologically, we don't know for sure the routes that they took, right? We, we would need to find, like, little pieces of broken turquoise <laughs> along certain routes. Um, but we can assume that they're using the rivers as much as they can. Um, there's a possibility that when they get to Mexico, they cross um, the Bay of Mexico to get to uh, the Yucatan. Right, that that it's not necessary to go all the way around, um, mm -hmm. but we don't, we we're not sure of the routes. We we just know about the endpoints because that's where we have the archaeological evidence of um, the trade. But uh, but uh, cacao was uh, popular throughout Mexico. The Aztecs uh, valued it greatly, and they would even offer a drink, a, a, a kind of a, a hot, a spicy hot chocolate drink to people, uh, to guests. So didn't they do that? Didn't they offer it to the, the conquistadors? They did. No, you're absolutely right. But I was going to say, we, the reason I know that there was trade between Chichen Itza and Chaco Canyon is that I've got turquoise in Chichen Itza. Mm -hmm. And the right. Aztec are 500 years later, right? Yeah. But yes, this, this chocolate drink, this, and it was a frothy chocolate that was um, uh, spiced often with chili peppers. And the reason I know yeah. that is because the Spanish sources tell us what the drink was like, right? Yes. The theobromine analysis from Chaco Canyon doesn't tell us what it tasted like. It just tells us that there was cacao in those vessels um, around the year 1000. This is before we started adding sugar to cacao. Right, right. No, that was one of, and it, it was, um, and, and it was also a stimulant. And, mm -hmm. um, and so the, um, the Maya are, love stimulants, and um, they're, some of them are ingested, like cacao, but um, they also, uh, are, there's a lot of evidence. Again, some of this is from the Spanish who encountered the Maya around um, 1500, but the Maya um, used enemas to get drugs that make them hallucinate. Mm. 
Wow. Uh, another uh, bit of archaeological uh, discovery is that animal hairs in textiles that were found in Greenland could only have come from North America. Right. When I mean, that, would that have happened? That's, that's this trade from after... Uh, the, so the Norse are in uh, Landfall Meadows in Newfoundland around 1000, and then there's trade between Canada and Greenland up till about 1400. That, that's when the Norse pull out of Greenland. And so... Um, the, and that's when those furs, like there's bison fur, and so that we know is an animal that's in North America but not in Greenland and not um, in Europe. Well, so there's an awful lot of trade going on, but you picked 1,000. You could have just as easily have picked a number of other years, couldn't you? That's true. I mean, the, the, I used 1,000. I told you, I mean, the Norse, that's when we know for sure that they land in Lanthaw Meadows. So um, that's a nice illustration of these different global networks being linked together. But that chocolate trade I was talking to you about that between um, Chaco Canyon and Chichen Itza, that's also around 1,000. Uh, mm. Chichen Itza is a big city starting around 900. And there's, so we, you know, we know that there's some trade to the south with Panama and Colombia around 900. That, um, but in different places, Cahokia Mounds is a big center in, in East St. Louis, in, in the U.S., mm -hmm. and obviously in the U.S., and uh, the um, Cahokia is, takes off as a large urban settlement around 1050. The, uh, so this year 1000, you know, y yes, the book is really, I think, about the time period between 1000 and 1500 and everything leading up to the European explorers. But... Um, a thousand is so. In a way, a thousand is a, a device, right? Just to to focus on a year. But a lot of things happen around a thousand. Well, the Anasazi uh, kind of abandoned their uh, their homes not long after. They found abalone shells in uh, right. in their ruins. Uh, they had to come from another part of Mexico. Right. No. No. And and also there's well so they may be from the California coast because Cahokia. Yeah. The East St. Louis site, um, there's trade networks that are extending to California, up to the Great Lakes, to Florida and Georgia. Uh, some, of, some of what's being traded are flints that people use um, to, like, strike. Uh, I was going to say, it's good that they don't have matches, right, to start a fire. And um, those are distinctive minerals that you can trace to their sources. And that's one of the ways we know where these trade routes, where they extended to. Now, there was trade in some regions before 1000 AD between Rome, India, and China, wasn't there? Uh, and then oh, later, funny, of course, I... we have Marco Polo going to China uh, in, the, in the late 13th century. That's not all that much later. Right, right. But the, so the Rome and India trade dies out. I mean, it's, it's, it exists during the Roman Empire. It's over around 500. Um, the Silk Road gets going right before 1000 and Pol when Marco Polo is traveling he's on a that's a, a tra an uh well I was going to say that that's a pre 1500 land route but then part of Marco Polo's journey he's actually also traveling by boat on this route um I was telling you about I I mean I would like to call it the Basra the Guangzhou route but those are not familiar places to Americans so let us say from southeast China to the Islamic world so uh, China seems to be at the center of so much of this. 
How did life in China in the year 1000 resemble the world we live in today? Well, it, it, I was going to say, rather than talk about all of China, I would talk about the most globalized places were these port cities on the southeast mm-hmm. coast. And there in the year 1000, there's a, a city called Quanzhou that um, is kind of an economic backwater. And that's always good news for archaeologists that things are better preserved in economic backwaters than they are in thriving metropolises. But um, in Quanzhou, uh, it was a city where there were foreign communities. So there were communities of um, Arabic-speaking merchants from the Islamic world. And there was a mosque. They built a mosque. Um, just a little bit after the year 1000. There are also merchants from South India, and they build Hindu temples. So um, we know that the, there are these foreign traders living there. Uh, the Trenjo, the, um, one of their major exports was very high-quality ceramics, and there was a big ceramics trade. There are rivers. This is like overland trade. There's um, deep forests in the it's called Fujian province, in Fujian, and um, people um, tended to have kilns up in the forest areas, but some of them were in Chenzhou, so that they had a steady lumber supply because they were firing thousands of pots in a single firing. And some of these kilns are about half a mile long, and they extend up the side of a hill because uh, it's called a dragon kiln. Uh, because the temp- they can attain higher temperatures by um, having the air travel uh, up. And it, the heat where the, the hot air accumulates, um, they, uh, can get, um, they can fire pots to these very high temperatures. So um, there are people we know, oh, this is where people are um, enjoying all of these aromatics that they're importing from Southeast Asia and the Islamic world. So the fabulously wealthy... There's, there's woods like sandalwood. We still have sandalwood boxes. We can buy a small sandalwood box and put something in it, right, or uh, preserve. Uh, it, because sandalwood repels insects, it's a good thing in, in warm climates. It will keep bugs away from something. But the fabulously wealthy in Trenjo built whole rooms or whole houses out of these aromatic woods, the imported aromatic woods, and then um, there were holes artfully <laughs> arranged around um, the rooms where they would fire, they would um, have fires with other aromatics, so that the room smelled of two different kinds of wood at the same time. There, um, there was a lot of focus on how things smelled and trying to improve the way things air smelled inside, and then also how people smelled um, with uh, applying lotions or perfumes. But you, you also mentioned religion, which played a, a role in the early years of globalization. Uh, Ukrainian Prince Vladimir had his people convert to Eastern Orthodox Christianity, uh, as practiced in the Byzantine Empire, to strengthen alliances with his powerful neighbors. And you also mention a, a man whose name really intrigues me, Harold Bluetooth, a Danish <laughs> king who was raised non-Christian, converted uh, his kingdom to Christianity to unite it. Is his his name the source of Bluetooth technology? Yes, absolutely right. Uh, wow! Because the, there were engineers who were working for Ericsson trying to combine, you know, it, create technology so that a telephone could talk to a computer, right? And filled with Scandinavian pride, 
um, they've named their technology um, for, for Bluetooth. And the Bluetooth logo that we see everywhere is the combination of the runes, that's the um, ancient Norse writing for H and B, for Harold and Bluetooth. Huh. Uh, one of the other driving forces for globalization in the year 1000 was the slave trade. Who was seeking labor? The slave trade is funny, but I mean, the slave trade is enormous. I think when we're talking about things that, you know, our, our sense that like Columbus connects the world and then um, we have this massive export of slaves from, and tragic, right, heartbreaking um, export of slaves from Africa to the Americas. Uh, and the well, uh, well Columbus estimates... also brought slaves back from the Caribbean to Spain. Right, so, but then it was funny. Um, Isabella forbids him to do that because she says they're going to be her future subjects and they're going to convert to Christianity. And if they're Christians, then he can't enslave them. Uh, so um, she the, should have uh, built a wall. <laughs> good idea. <laughs> um, but the the slave trade. So I was going to say, modern estimates are about twelve and a half million slaves crossed the Atlantic and the transatlantic slave trade. Mm. Um, the pre-modern, the pre-1500 slave trade from sub-Saharan Africa across the African, across the Sahara, and then up to the Mediterranean and into um, mostly the Islamic world. That's where the great, the greatest demand for slaves is. Uh, the numbers are just a little bit lower, like maybe around um, 11 million uh, slaves uh, over a longer period of time, but still millions of people are being displaced. The um, Islamic world is uh, uh, um, the Islamic world has a. You, you asked me about labor. It's funny. There, it is the slaves. It is slave labor, but a lot of it is reproductive. That uh, female slaves are being um, imp the Islamic world and the big cities the, are Baghdad and Cairo. Actually, Constantinople, which is a Byzantine city, so a Christian city, not a Muslim city. Um, they're importing. Uh, slaves from Africa, but also from uh, North and Eastern Europe. So our word slave comes from the word Slav, uh, oh. and um, also from Central Asia where there's mounted warrior slaves. This, the, so the world slave trade is huge um, in this period, and it's focused on Baghdad. And we have a wonderful book about um, the slave trade. It's written for, it's advice for slave buyers from a Christian doctor who's living in Baghdad. So that's a good reminder that when we say the Islamic world, that there were um, large religious minorities living under um, the protection of Islamic rulers. So the Christians were a minority in Baghdad. And uh, this man, whose name is Ibn Butlan, and he, um, he talks about the different places slaves come from. And he subscribes to a medieval idea about medicine that the region you come from shapes your physique. And so, and it, it, this he, his whole book is about stereotypes. But and there's some <laughs> some some profound misconceptions. He thinks the slaves coming from Scandinavia, the female slaves are not that good because they don't menstruate. So you know he, he's not. It's, it, his book also tells us disinformation. It's not just good information that moves along trade routes. Bad information can also move along trade routes. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at large on. WBAI New York 99.5 FM.
A little bit of music, I'm told, comes from around the year 1000. Um, Valerie, could you just hold on for a moment? Because uh, before I get back to your conversation with you, um, I have, I'm sure that uh, everyone's aware that the coronavirus pandemic has upended all aspects of life as we know it. And for a small listener-supported radio station like WBAI, it's been particularly devastating. So to, to cope with this unprecedented time, we're asking anyone who can afford it to step up right now and go to our website, wbai.org, or to call 516-620-3602. That's 516-620-3602 to help keep this show and the station on the air. If you're one of the lucky ones whose financial situation has remained stable throughout this chaotic time, uh, there are 22 million Americans out of work, I think, maybe more now. We're asking you to please do your part to help cover the, the losses that the station has suffered because so many listeners simply can't afford to support us at this time. Again, the number 516-620-3602, or you can go to our website, uh, another WBAI.org, or to give to WBAI.org. That's give, the number two, WBAI.org. One great way to help keep the station alive and thriving throughout the year is to become a BAI buddy. BAI buddies are sustaining members who, who spread their contributions out throughout the year through monthly contributions of, of $10, $15, $20, any uh, amount, really. Uh, and they allow us to plan financially for the future because uh, we know that uh, Three months from now, that $10 contrib that next $10 contribution will be coming in. And if uh, you become a BA body for $10, let's say, it adds up to $120 a year, um, but in little drips and drabs. And that and we really do need to have that kind of uh, ability to, to plan financially for the future. So please make sure also that you make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopez at large. From all of us at the station, Thank you so much. And I'm uh, excited to get back to my guest, Valerie Hansen, her latest book, The Year 1000, When Explorers Connected the World and Globalization Began. It's from Scribner. Uh, how do we pick up the, the story? Uh, well, um, what was, for example, what was the impact of globalization in the year 1000? How did global markets in 1000 set the stage for the globalization of the 15th century? I think the impact is we've, we've been talking a lot about trade. And mm -hmm. so those trade routes have taken shape. And then when the European explorers um, arrive around 1500, they're often connecting pre-existing routes. And Columbus, for example, um, he, uh, it's funny, he, his, he and his men take over um, a Maya, a giant Maya canoe. We don't know how long it is. He he says it's um, the length of a Venetian galley. So, but we don't know how what he's what he's actually thinking of. Uh, but and he just. But it sounds long. All, it's long, right? It's good, long. Uh, you know, I was going to say what thirty, fifty feet, something like that. Uh, and he describes, but that we know the boat is carrying a lot of people, and then he also men and women, and he also describes the goods that are in the boat. And uh, there is, and he talks about. I mean, Columbus is a very smart man. Uh, he sees that the um, Amerindians drop some beans, and he 
thinks they're almonds. That's they look like almonds to him, and they're not almonds. They're cacao cacao beans, right? That uh, he just doesn't recognize. But so the, the we've so we've been talking about these trade routes, and these trade routes exist, and then the um, ex- Spanish or Portuguese in, in the 1500s is usually one or the other arrive, and they connect these different routes, and then they have some routes that they pioneer, like Columbus crossing the mid-Atlantic, that's a new route, and the route down West Africa is new. Um, So some of the impact of globalization is linked to trade and um, people producers, people who are making things or harvesting the Southeast Asians who are in forests, harvesting these aromatic woods that the Chinese are importing, uh, they're also affected by the trade. Uh, One of the things that interests me is that people who don't leave home are also affected. So those Southeast Asians who are in the forest collecting these goods had been living a life where I think we usually think of hunters and gatherers. You know, they get up in the morning and they can decide what what they want to harvest that day, what they're going to look for, or if they're hungry, what kinds of, and given what season it is, what plants they want. Um, Suddenly, with with the Chinese demand for these goods, um, they're on schedules. They need to harvest four birds a day, four of a certain Hmm. kind of bird a day. Um, So, and I think religion is one of the places where we can really see the impact on the people who don't leave home. Oh, the other group of people who leave home and are directly affected are, of course, the slaves, the slaves that are moving, being forced to leave their homes and um, go to the slave trading centers um, in Constantinople or Cairo um, or uh, Baghdad. But the people who don't leave home, like the subject you were talking about before we were talking about the Ukrainian prince, Vladimir, who converts to Eastern Orthodoxy. And so before he converts, his people are worshiping a variety of different deities. Like we we know that they worship the god of lightning, for example. After he converts, you know, for a couple of centuries, um, they may not have that much contact with Christianity. Maybe a bishop comes by every once in a while. But um, over time, these the um, the religions chosen by the ruler percolate down, and um, these societies become profoundly, in the case of Ukraine, profoundly Christian. Uh, in other places, they become, and that's true with Harold Bluetooth, too. Yeah. He, he converts um, to Christianity, and there's a political advantage for the rulers who convert that um, it's a world religion, and so if they're worshiping individual deities and they have a rival, and that rival can rally his supporters or her supporters, around an, another deity. But with a world religion, it's much harder to argue to try, you know, it's hard to go, uh, if you're supporting an individual deity, it's hard to go up against Christianity, right? Christianity is an all-encompassing, uh, it's, a, it's a religion, but it's also an ideology for rulers. And when Vladimir converts, one of the things he gains is the expertise of the literate clergy who can come and help him administer a, a very young empire. That's also true of Islam. And yes, uh, Islam wound up moving across North Africa. Uh, absolutely. And, uh, but uh, across to, North Africa ahead. and into Central Asia. Um, one of the things I think we have a general misconception about Islam that it was conquest by the sword, that uh, Muslim armies conquered a given place and then forced all of the inhabitants to convert. And historically, that's not accurate the, um, because Muslims paid lower taxes than non-Muslims. So the conquerors actually wanted to have people stay non-Muslim so they would pay higher 
taxes. And uh, we have a very careful study done by actually Professor Columbia, Dick Bullitt, um, about uh, conversion in Iran. And it takes three or four centuries before Iran becomes Muslim, that the majority of people in Iran become Muslim. The world's first anti-globalization riots took place around the year 1000 in cities like Cairo, Constantinople, and Guangzhou. What was happening there? Why, uh, why were they riding against globalization? Because they could see that the foreign merchants, we talked about the um, foreign merchants in Shenzhou in uh, uh, that there were uh, Muslim in the year 1000, there were Muslim and also South Indian merchants. In Cairo, it's Italians from the Amalfi Coast. In Constantinople, it's also Italians, um, but from uh, Genoa there um, and Venice. And they um, have in constant, we, uh, I was going to say, the locals can see that the foreign merchants are profiting from the foreign trade and living very lavish lives in large houses, um, often marrying or not marrying, just living with local women, and um, that incurs the wrath of uh, people who've been left behind. And so they have these uprisings where they target the foreigners um, and kill them. It sounds like the world hasn't changed all that much. Uh, one of the big differences... People have changed, right? I mean, one, one of the things that I mean, you're talking to a medieval historian, but one of the things that really interested me reading, writing this book is that how, seeing how people react, because the situations can be very different from our world, right? Nobody has iPhones. But, uh, you know, people get angry or they get frustrated and they strike out. And those emotions are things that we can certainly understand ourselves. There's, we can see ourselves in our, in our um, ancestors. Now, one of the big differences uh, between 1,000 and uh, 500 plus years later is that travelers in the world in 1,000 were technologically equivalent. But uh, when uh, 1492 and afterward, Europeans had firearms and cannons that allowed them to dominate everyone they encountered. And uh, that led to uh, a, a a new form of colonization, or was it just simply exported colonization? Sorry, when you say exported colonization, uh, what I mean is, uh, for example, uh, a, a country taking over the the, the, the neighboring country, uh, as opposed to traveling across the world and taking over uh, North America and then and South America. Yeah, because they had guns. I mean, one of the things that. Uh, European historians are very interested in is where this idea of having a non-contiguous colony comes mm -hmm. from, right? Because you're absolutely right in the ancient world that um, countries expand and they conquer their neighbors and then that neighbor becomes part of that country. And maybe it's, and this is even true in the ancient world with Rome, right? Uh, and maybe mm -hmm. the in the first stage, it's they treat the people who live in the newly conquered place differently than in the, the mother country, and then later on they may um, allow them, as the case of Rome, to become citizens. The, but the idea of having a colony that is controlled by the mother country that's far away, um, I think there's a very good argument about Europe that it goes back to the Crusades and like the colonization of the Mediterranean islands by the Crusaders uh, is um, something that is happening before Columbus. So when Basically, the, when Columbus 
goes into the Atlantic, and and you know he doesn't. He, Columbus never knows where he is. There's fabulous research about this. I mean, he thinks he's, he's in thinks, India, doesn't he? Right. He's right. I mean, that's that's why he calls them Indians, right? He's and he's and he thinks. I mean, he's he's very specific and completely wrong about where he thinks he is um, on the map. Um, but he, when he gets there, it's natural for him to try to form a government that is going to remove resources from this place he thinks is India and send them back to Spain. And that's something that that idea of a colony, I, as I said, I think goes back to the Crusaders. And uh, we don't have that in China. Um, that's one of the things that's interesting to me. We have, I mean, the Chinese are going places um, and they know they need to restock their ships at different ports and they um, will send a, an ambassador from the Chinese emperor to the ruler, the local ruler of a given place, with gifts, and they expect the ruler to send gifts back to the emperor. But they don't have an idea that, oh, you know, I'm in India, I should make this little part of India somehow part of China. One of your books is titled The Open Empire, A History of China in 1800, to 1800. What made, what made China an open empire? Uh, in, the, in the second edition of the book, you wrote about the, the Qing Empire from 1600 to 1800 and how China continued to be an open empire into the years of modern China. Is it still uh, even in communist China? Yeah, it's funny. There's, there's different periods. Well, I was going to say the, 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 the book has an argument. Most people think China is closed, right? It was historically closed. And that often when I'm teaching, like students will say to me, well, okay, Buddhism comes from India, but the Chinese took it over and it became Chinese. Stops being foreign somehow. Um, and my book, The Open Empire, is saying, no, no, no. You know, it still came from India. China had to adopt something from outside it. Uh, and Buddhism is the best example historically of massive foreign influence uh, on China that because of this kind of mental trick of, oh, the Chinese made it Chinese, so it stopped being foreign. Uh, we don't realize that. Um, the communists, you know, in the first 30 years of, well, the first 10 years of Chinese history, I mean, of the People's Republic, um, there's a, a large Soviet presence and a lot of technological know-how is coming in with Soviet experts. Then Mao expels the Soviet uh, experts there's a period, during the Cultural Revolution, there's a period where China is genuinely closed and there's very little foreign influence. But I, I was going to say, um, I often say, I, I, almost all of my friends are historians, but I have one ordinary Chinese person I know pretty well who used to take care of my kids when we were in China. And she was a child in China in the Cultural Revolution in this period when China was so closed. And she met some Albanians. And another friend of mine who was in China in the Cultural Revolution in Shanghai said, all the women's fashions, the hairstylists copied Albanian hairstyles. So even at its most closed, Chinese people have been intensely interested in what's going on outside of China. And then, um, at, you know, after 1979, well, the normalization with Nixon in the early 70s, and then 1979, the actual, sorry, normalization of diplomatic relations with America, I think Chinese have been very open to the outside. Things have changed now. I mean, it's since 2012. Well, things have changed, of course, because of COVID-19. And I think we're all rethinking how open our societies are and what we need to make 
ourselves and then what we can get other societies. Um, I mean, what is it safe for us to buy from outside our own societies, and what kinds of things do we need to have the capacity to make ourselves in case there's another pandemic, right? We're all thinking like that. Um, but in China is being blamed for this, uh, this pandemic, and the state of Missouri is suing the Chinese government for not doing enough to stop the spread of the virus. But I was thinking uh, while you were talking about that, that um, China is one of the the great exporters of the world, maybe the major exporter, but pretty much all the things they export were invented elsewhere. Now, I mean, it's funny, that's yes, what I would say. In, in the, the, yeah, with, in, in, in the past in the 30 years world, or so. Yeah, but I mean, that they're, uh, I mean, I, I, um, one of the first research projects I did on China, this was 40 years ago, was about Chinese exports. I was a student, uh, and, you know, one of the major um, Chinese exports at that time was pig bristles. And I was telling this to someone who's like, what's a pig bristle, right? But you use them to make brushes, right? So it's it's hard for us. But now, you know, I think that picture of China only exporting things made elsewhere in the world, I mean, that's, that's changing. There's a lot of sophistication in um, Chinese manufacturing. And someone was telling me about, um, uh, you know, comparing different phones and looking at um, – Chinese phones and comparing them with like Korean phones and iPhones and being surprised by like how advanced the Chinese phones are. So I, I think um, that our mental picture of Chinese manufacturing is is not quite up to date. In in writing about the world we live in today and how it's shaped by the year 1000 um, and our history, you note that quote. We're wrestling with exactly the same challenges that people faced for the first time then. Questions like, should we cooperate with our neighbors, trade with them, allow them to settle in our countries and, and grant them freedom of worship when they live in our society? Should we try to keep them out? Should we retaliate against the people who become wealthy through trade? Should we try to make new products that copy technologies we haven't yet mastered? And finally, will globalization make us more aware of who we are or will it destroy our identity? Uh, I guess that's one of the reasons that right now many people have soured on the concept of, of globalization. Right. And I, I mean, I think one of the me too, right? <laughs> like everybody who's been stuck home for the last two months, like who, who there are very few people are championing championing um, uh, globalization right now. But the, the but it's been going happened. back a while. Forgive me for interrupting. In an analysis in 2016, economist Pankaj uh, Gim, is it Jimawat, uh, noted that media mentions of globalization across major newspapers demonstrated a major decline. Uh, there, there's been a turn against globalization. Is it just a backlash against big business, big corporations, consolidation, or um, is it a uh, kind of like closing the borders, putting up walls kind of mentality? Well, I think, I mean, I, I was, I was going to say as a historian, you know, you can look back in time and see that there have been these kinds of reactions in the past. Right, like the at the end of World War One, the reaction to the Spanish flu or the Depression, right? Where um, I think when things are going well and globalization is increasing and trade is increasing and people are having fun and they're um, getting you know these new novel objects they crave uh, and eating food and traveling, all of those things are a lot of fun. Um, but there's no process with globalization to shield people from the bad times. 
right? And then suddenly we're like now we're in the middle of this pandemic and thinking, oh, you know, maybe we should have kept the capacity to make antibiotics. Maybe maybe that's something our society really shouldn't shouldn't uh, ship, you know, uh, move offshore. We farmed it out um, because we farmed it out because it was being produced more cheaply in China and other places. Right. But just uh, I was reading about the cost of, um, you know, medical masks, a couple of cents. So, you know, something like 30. And I don't know that this is true. It's just something I read. But 36 cents for a mask made in America, 32 cents for one made in China. You know, I think be like, oh, you know what? Maybe we should pay those four cents. Mm -hmm. Make it in America. Right. That I think, but this has happened in the past too. That um, people, something happens, takes people people's breath away, uh, and there's a corrective. But personally, I think that one of the things, and I didn't really think about this when I was writing the book back in the good old days when I could go any place I wanted to. Uh, but the mm-hmm. one of the things that keeps globalization going is our intense desire for new things. And in this encounter that we between the Amerindians and the Vikings, when they first arrive in Canada, the um, Amerindians, uh, the Vikings are, are trading red cloth. They have, I told you, they had these iron um, weapons and their leaders have forbidden them to trade those. And uh, the, but the Amerindians start off and the Norse are cutting fairly long pieces of red cloth, like bands that you could sew on the edge, of, like a hem of a skirt. But the, the Amerindians are so excited and they want the red cloth and they're trading furs for them. And the pieces of cloth just get smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, and that, that enthusiasm for and, – and so they're still willing to trade the same furs for smaller and smaller scraps of red cloth. Uh, and that that desire for the new is it's such a part of our human makeup. The um, there's a Jacques Cartier, so the French explorer gets to the same part of the world. We're not sure if it's exactly where the Norse were, but it seems likely it is. And he's also trading red cloth. Well, he's also trading um, some weapons, some metal weapons. And uh, the people he's trading with are so excited. The Amerindians he's trading with are so I gotta excited. I got to leave it there. I'm sorry, we've run out of time. Well, it was the, fun. <laughs> yes, I loved it. The The book is called The Year 1000, When Explorers Connected the World and Globalization Began uh, by Valerie Hansen. Uh, it's been a great pleasure talking with you. And uh, tomorrow we are going to be uh, preempted tomorrow for special WBAI May Day programming. But I hope you can join us again on Monday when Michael J. Thompson and Gregory R. Smulowitz Zucker will discuss their new collection of essays on democratic socialism. Have a great weekend.